welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic cult and current films and the people that made them and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at, at a time. Tonight, we delve into the latter career of ace special effects wizard Ray Harryhausen, focusing on the Valley of Guanji, which is a personal favorite. And joining us at the microphone is a true aficionado of stop motion animation, a film historian, writer, and author, Greg Kulon, whose multi part, exquisitely researched article on Guanji for Film Facts blew me away. Welcome, Greg. Hi, thanks, Steve. Glad to be here. So uh, I'm, I'm just delighted to talk about that. I'm sure that some people are thinking of this as my guilty pleasure night, but I, I have a lot of positives to say about Guanji, uh, a movie that doesn't get talked about enough. And who better to talk to about it but you. But tell us a little bit about your background. Um, were you always a film goer from an early age? Oh, yeah. I mean, when it comes back to fantastic cinema and actually stop motion movies, I, I was hooked from when I was a kid. I didn't know what those movies were that had stop motion, but there was something special about them. I don't remember ever not having seen some of them, right? They they go back to, you know, probably well before first grade, let's put it that way. And I found them in, while I was growing up near Cleveland, and they they stuck with me forever. Do you remember one of the first ones you ever saw? Um, it would have probably been one of Ray's uh, Harryhausen's black and white films. Those were on almost every other week in Cleveland on a Saturday afternoon. So I saw, you know, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms and 20 Million Miles to Earth quite often. And uh, even as color films, they didn't show up quite as often, but but still, most of them I would see on a regular basis. It's actually kind of funny because it took me years to find Guanji. Uh, not that I wasn't looking. Well, Guanji is kind of an interesting story. I mean, I I had already become a, a Harryhausen fan, starting with Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which I saw in the theaters, and I thought I was, you know, up on everything. And I must have either been out of town, or I blinked twice because Guanji came and went. And I discovered it, uh, CBS had a late night movie uh, back in the early 70s. And I think the first time I saw Guanji was in a late night movie on CBS. And it's like, wait a second, did this ever open in theaters? And I uh, know we'll, we'll get into that, but I did a little bit of, uh, of snooping around and it sounds like uh, Ray and Charles Schneer, his favorite producer uh, were kind of victims of a change of administration at Warner's. Yeah, fairly typical. And and when you first saw Guanji, it was probably when I first heard Guanji. Uh, we were we were kids and, and we were uh, aware the film was going to be shown, but in Toledo, not in Cleveland. So we got together, a bunch of us had a sleepover that night waiting to see the movie if the reception would be good. Unfortunately, it turned out the reception was poor that night. We saw a fuzzy picture come in every once in a while, but mainly we just sat there and listened to the film and figured out what the visuals would look like in our mind. You know, it's interesting. Um, the The movies that were made back then, going back to the 40s and even earlier the 30s, 
there's something very charming about them. You know, they didn't have the whiz bang digital effects we have today, but I would still find them tremendously entertaining. And I think what Ray's strong suit was, not only did he create great, did, great uh, stop motion characters, but he matched them to really good stories. And I, I think I would match Jason and the Argonauts and Sinbad and Three Worlds of Gulliver against anything made today, just in, just in terms of pure entertainment value. I mean, I was sitting in my chair. I was charmed. Well, I, I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, one thing that in Ray's films is he always took them seriously. I mean, there might be an occasional joke, but it's nothing like the uh, amount of one-liners we would deal with in a movie today. And uh, I always enjoyed that the actors seemed to be feeling what they should have been feeling under those situations. Now, uh, I, as I said earlier, I, I loved your article for Film Facts. Uh, for the listeners who haven't read the article, can you tell us a little bit about the Guanji story? I know it goes back to Willis O'Brien, the creator of King Kong. Um, and this was going to be a project subsequent after, after Kong, right? Well, it was actually um, in the early 1940s. Um, if, if you give a little background, um, Willis O'Brien and Marion Cooper, who was the director for King Kong, um, had been working on a film at Metro Golden Mare called War Eagles. And that was going to be a, a massive undertaking with basically a, uh, a lost world full of Vikings and dinosaurs. And these Vikings would ride huge birds. And all of this was taking place, depending on which version of the script you read, either in the Arctic or the Antarctic. But um, unfortunately, um, World War II started, and Marion Cooper left MGM to, uh, to go start working on the war efforts in China. And that left Obi without a project in 1940. Uh, he then ended up working with a, a production associate of his from the last days of Pompeii, John Speaks, and they got together and, and sold this idea to uh, RKO to be a, a major picture. It was actually going to be... Uh, the, the press releases touted it as the biggest RKO film of all time, and uh, it was going to be done in Technicolor. Now, it didn't obviously turn out that way, but uh, that was the sales pitch. And that was for War Eagles? No, actually, that was Guanji. After War Eagles got canceled at MGM because Cooper had left to go fight in the war, um, RKO was the one that they took Guanji to and, uh, and, and got it sold effectively, or at least pre-sold. They actually did a huge amount of pre-production on it and uh, um, took it pretty far along, but uh, RKO was having a little bit of financial difficulty at the time, uh, largely because uh, Orson Welles was, was spending a lot of money on Magnificent Ambersons and Citizen Kane was tanking at the box office. Uh, so it's amazing how some of these things turn out um, differently than what history might have been. Now, I know that Ray eventually worked with uh, O'Brien. Was it as early as this or was it later? No, it was later. Um, they had a short stint um, actually after Guanji on George Pal Puppetoons, where they had met. Um, Ray had met um, Willis O'Brien in 1939 while Obi was working on War Eagles, um, that project I mentioned with Marion Cooper. Right. Um, but, but Ray never actually started to work on the project. He visited the studio, got to see a lot of the pre-production art, and uh, talked to him and get some, uh, some view of his potential. 
and he always intended to uh, to follow up with Obi when a project became real. Um, but again, um, the war started, and Ray went off into the uh, to the um, Frank Capra division of the uh, Signal Corps to work on uh, military <laughs> films in the army. And uh, Obi actually went off to uh, Chicago for a while to work on some classified films. Again, uh, military projects uh, kind of put most everything on hold for a few years. Wouldn't be till after the war that Cooper um, reassembled the group, um, brought out Obi on board for Mighty Joe Young, and then uh, Obi eventually hired Ray as kind of an assistant to uh, to begin work on Mighty Joe Young. So that's where they really started to collaborate. Um... And then how long did Willis O'Brien live? Oh, he passed away in 1962. So he was not around to uh, know that uh, Ray Harryhausen would eventually film the Guanji project. Um, you know, at some point before he passed while he was working with Ray, he had handed off a copy of the storyboards and a copy of the script to Ray. And uh, Ray had kept those around uh, being interested in the project and uh, He'd had a great success with One Million Years B.C. with both Raquel Welch and Dinosaurs. And uh, Schneer, Charles Schneer, his uh, partner on so many films, uh, decided that another dinosaur film uh, might be a good project to take on at that point in time. So Gawanji was uh, pulled from oblivion and, and a new script was written based on the uh, earlier work. By William Bass. By William Bass, yes. And, you know, it's interesting. The movie, for the listeners who have not seen The Valley of Guanji, Valley of Guanji is very much a version of King Kong. You just take Kong away and add an Allosaurus, and you've got most of the plot of The Valley of Guanji. Uh, but still, the concept, uh, and I think several people have said this, the concept of cowboys and dinosaurs is, is interesting. It, it, it's kind of an interesting story idea, and no one had ever considered doing cowboys and dinosaurs before, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, to the first order, I think there might have been a few science fiction stories and probably a couple of pulp magazines that had, you know, some covers that were reminiscent of that. But in terms of a film project, that was that was it. Obi loved dinosaurs and he loved the American West. And, uh, you know, he had actually been a uh, ranch hand and a lumberman and, and a lot of other things before he made King Kong. So he brought all of that experience to uh, to a film project. Now, Greg, do you know if um, oh, uh, if Ray was aware of this other picture that eventually came out called The Beast from Hollow Mountain? Yeah, Ray was, was aware of that film. I don't know. Uh, I don't recall him ever saying anything about it specifically. But uh, that was a Cowboys vs. Dinosaur type of film that was uh, from a story by Willis O'Brien. Um, but but entirely unrelated to Guanji. Well, it was uh, when Guanji didn't sell, um, I think you could say Obi kept on trying to sell ideas and story concepts when times were lean. And uh, yeah, it was a completely unrelated project, but, it, but he uh, came up with it. He came up with actually several different... Uh, stories, Valley of the Mists and um, the Eagle among them that all kind of had a uh, prehistoric slash um, cowboy or ranch hands type of uh, component to them. So Obi was basically generating ideas that uh, he thought would work for a film. And uh, 
unfortunately he was he was doing that mainly um to get a little money for the scripts but also to mainly work on the special effects should the the films be sold the unfortunate thing is that uh, edward nasser didn't hire him to do the effects when they finally uh decided to make the beast of hollow mountain into a real film right which is 1956 so it's 13 years before um before guanji and i remember seeing it it was a popular film early early um on early television science fiction theater mm-hmm. that kind of thing and i'm looking at the credit list uh, of special effects um Jack Rabin was one of the special effects people, and the stop motion animator was someone named Edward Nassour, uh, who was not credited. I think Jack Rabin, I, I think he was uh, uh, very much involved in special effects in Hollywood. That name sounds familiar. I almost feel like he was involved with Forbidden Planet, but I may be, be wrong on that case. Ra- Rabin worked on a lot of films, uh, I think mainly tended to the low, lower budget efforts and optical items, yeah. Right. And there was also a man, uh, if I remember correctly, Henry Lyon, that did the uh, uh, many of the sculptures that were used for the film. Because if if you remember uh, the animation in the film, they had both a larger puppet model, stop, traditional stop motion puppet, but they also used replacement animation for the run cycle of the uh, of the Allosaurus when it was you know doing things like chasing after a cowboy on horse. Now, so, now, are you talking about Guanji? Or are you talking about no, Hollow Mountain? Beast of Hollow Mountain. Beast of Hollow Mountain. Okay, so so that was that was an Allosaurus as well. I I believe so. Um, Obi always tended to like to use the Allosaurus in most of his projects. I think he felt, uh, if you read a lot of his story treatments, one thing he felt was very important was to have the creature of a size that the interaction with the people was reasonable. He always got worried about the monsters getting too large, and especially right. after films like Godzilla came out, he. Uh, he always used it as a sales point that his processes would would allow significant interaction and have a creature of good size to be a threat, but not necessarily a existential threat like a 500 foot creature might be. Sure, sure. I mean, I, I, I have to tell you, the Godzilla movies have been spectacular. I mean, the amount of ingenuity that goes in to make them real uh are as a tremendous uh but it is kind of overwhelming that these creatures are 100 feet high and 200 yeah. feet high and and guanji guanji I mean, guanji fits nice nicely in a wagon <laughs> he does <laughs> he does so uh, obi had him in yeah. a truck originally because you know o'brien's story was going to take place um in the 1940s unlike valley of guanji which went back to 1912 which is interesting. Uh, I think I read somewhere that the concept of doing it as a modern film, as obviously they're doing with the Godzilla movies, uh, just he didn't want to get involved in, you know, helicopter gunships and, you know, machine guns and everything. There was something, I guess, kind of elegant dealing with people with rifles and six shooters. Oh, very much so. And uh, after, especially after World War II, when people knew more about, uh, much more about kind of weaponry that weaponry that could be pulled out um a, a film in the 50s about fighting a dinosaur that's realistic size uh an allosaurus or a t-rex whatever um it wouldn't take a whole lot of, of military firepower to take one of them down right right no exactly unless you're firing blanks <laughs> well there you go <laughs> as they were in the <laughs> right in the right 20s. well you know um 
the, the one of the complaints about Guanji over the years is that the first hour is very slow, and uh, you don't really get to see Guanji till I, I'm not sure exactly when he comes in, but it's 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 late in the movie, uh, comparatively. And yet I find the setup just really nicely done because of the story and the actors. Um, I really, I, I, I like the way, um, I like the way it starts with uh, James Franciscus' character. I always liked James Franciscus. I, you know, people know him from Mr. Novak, the TV series, but I remember him in an early episode of the Twilight Zone. And uh, he did a number of television shows, not, not a lot of features. And of course, I think two years later or three years later, he's in um, he's in the sequel to Planet of the Apes. Exactly. That's where I first knew him. Right, right. And um, he plays Tuck Kirby, who's kind of a, uh, an entrepreneur who wants to buy Omar the Wonder Horse from his old girlfriend, T.J. Breckenridge, played by Gila Golan, an Israeli actress that we all discovered in her glorious form in the first Our Man Flint movie. Exactly. And uh, and of course, I guess the the general feeling was that her voice was this accent was too thick, so they revoiced her. And yet, I, I, have you discovered in your research has anybody ever come forward and said who the voice of uh, TJ was? Ah, uh, you know, actually, I I think that might be in the uh, edition of Master of the Magics by Mike Hankin. I would have to check that up, but I know uh, both Mike Hankin and Ernie Farino did a lot of. Uh, looking into voice actors and, and identifying so some of those spots. Huck, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or I could shoot you. That was the line. Uh, excuse me. Uh, and uh, of course, we have Richard Carlson, who plays Champ Connors, who's kind of her guardian. And he's mm -hmm. Richard Carlson has a very, very long resume and genre. I mean, I loved him in... Uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, it came from outer space. I mean, he was a fixture in the 1950s. And then one of my favorite actors, uh, speaking of having worked with Ray Harryhausen uh, earlier, is Lawrence Naismith, who plays Professor Bromley, who we obviously had met earlier in Jason the Argonauts. He plays Argo. I thought he was terrific. Wasn't he fun? Oh, he's great. Yeah, it, it, it's an excellent character. Yeah, it, it's kind of interesting that when you go to the uh, work on the O'Brien project that um, Champ, and, well, there was no Professor Bromley in that version. And uh, Champ kind of has a lot of the traits of both Bromley and uh, and uh, Champ. So he, uh, many of the scenes like falling into the pit at night and the uh, um, trying to stay with the pterodactyl when Guanji's approaching and not believing that there's a li giant lizard coming after him were all uh, items that were originally in the script for Champ as opposed to Professor Bromley. Right, right. And then, of course, um, uh, Bromley befriends the little boy. Actually, Tuck befriends the little boy, Lopi, Curtis Arden. Was Curtis Arden Hispanic or was he just playing in Hispanic? I believe he was Hispanic. Yeah, he seems to be a person hard to track down. Everybody's wondering where he is these days. Well, hopefully, if he's listening to this podcast, Curtis, we want to talk to you. Um, uh, yeah, the, the, the relation, the, these movies always seem to benefit from having a kid involved. And I think that it's particularly fun to see the relationship between Lopi, Lopi and Bromley. 
the professor. And, um, you know, uh, the idea of having a professor to kind of guide the story and give us information, I think, goes all the way back to one of my favorite science fiction movies of the 50s, which is Them, uh, which mm -hmm. Edmund Gwen played the wonderful uh, uh, professor who um, helps find the giant ants in that movie. And uh, I just like that kind of character in the story. Um, I think, you know, again, like I was saying, that some people start think it starts slow, but I thought it was very charming the way that TJ introduces the Eohippus to Tuck. And it's, it's, it's a little character in the story. I mean, he's uh, the Eohippus is the dawn horse, and we know from our paleontology that he was the first horse. I thought all those sequences were very charming. Did you? Oh, it's a, it's a beautiful model, and I love the animation. It's it's very subtle for the most part. Uh, just uh, very small movements while uh, he's in the cage or or in the uh, in the little area. So yeah, it was a, it was a beautiful idea, and I love tying it to you know the Eohippus um, in uh, in theory. And in the O'Brien um, project, it was going to be just midget horses because of a population of midget horses that had been discovered in the Grand Canyon. Um, around 1940. So it was kind of a local news event that was uh, providing this mystery that hey, even in something like the Grand Canyon or the Badlands of, of uh, um, the Northwestern United States can produce some sort of hidden creatures that have never been seen before. Yeah, it's funny because I think I learned early, uh, years ago that uh, there are people down in Texas who raise miniature horses and they, re they also raise miniature cows, which I thought mm -hmm. was interesting. Um, no, that, that, that's, and of course, the, another thing that, that what's nice about this movie, again, the movie starts with, um, Carlos's brother bringing the horse to TJ. I mean, it's, it's very, very kind of creepy atmospheric opening. You have this guy desperately coming out of the badlands with a sack and he, he, um, He's found by the 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 I guess his his little uh, group of people. They're kind of like gypsies, mm -hmm. or as we say today, Romani. And uh, then he falls down dead. And uh, and I think his last word doesn't he utter the last word is Guanji. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> right before we get to hear the title music. Yes. <laughs> and speaking of the music, I I have to say. I have always been a huge Jerome Moraz fan. I mean, uh, I, I've collected his soundtracks over the years. He's well known for the big country, uh, which is, was that William Wyler Western. Uh, he, do, he does um, The Cardinal. He does The Warlord with Charlton Heston. Uh, he, one of my favorite scores of Moraz is a World War II movie with Jimmy Stewart from 1960 called The Mountain Road which is about these demolition uh, the unit, a demolition unit operating in East China. And uh, just a great score. So when I discovered it was uh, Marat scoring Guanji, and the, the score has a flavor of the big country. It has kind of that Western motif. By the way, another great score, is of, a great score of his, uh, which was the same year as the big country, is The Proud Rebel an Alan Ladd movie, which has a wonderful score. He was very comfortable with scoring Westerns. And uh, I thought he was perfect for this. It was interesting because Harryhausen is so associated with Bernard Herrmann in so many of those movies. 
And um, I think um, I thought Morosa's score, Morosa's score was terrific. Did you like it? I love the score. Yeah, I, I think it goes really well. It it has that feel for uh, the horses running. That's just perfect, and uh, it 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 works. It's it's very different. But Harryhausen was lucky to work with so many great composers over the years, and I think this was another fantastic score to add to. Oh, absolutely! And for the listeners, you you really have to pay attention to this music because it really sells the movie. And I don't think um, Jerome Morris did much work uh, in the fantasy world. I mean, this is obviously a genre movie. It's dinosaurs and cowboys, but I thought he did a really terrific job. Let's talk a little bit more about the story. I mean, the the when Guanji arrives, and I, I have to say that Guanji is one of my favorite Harryhausen creations. And that's saying a lot because he's created so many memorable uh, characters, um, you know, going all the way back to my first seeing seventh voyage and seeing the cyclops and the dragon um what what were your thoughts on guanji as a creation oh it, i i think it's a, a beautiful design i mean uh, obviously it's sculpted by arthur hayward um who's a worked with a uh, paleontologist in london and uh, was associated with ray but it's it's uh you can always debate whether it's a tyrannosaurus or an allosaurus it, it seems to be a mix of both which is which is perfectly fine. And and Ray took so much, I think, of his inspiration and love of the look of these dinosaurs from the the very early Charles Knight paintings, uh, at which point even some of the, um, you know, some of his murals from the 1920s was when we still didn't have um, very many bones from a T-Rex yet. So um, they used Allosaurus bones as a reference for the design. And I think that translated into Knight's early artwork, and I think it translated into Ray's view, view of dinosaurs for many years. But it, he's a very dynamic character, and uh, it, it's nice to see Ray doing a character that, that runs through most of the film, at least the action sequences of the film, right? As opposed to just a three-minute cameo and then be gone. No, absolutely. Um, now, I did I did read something that I find is interesting, that uh, the, there are some color problems with Guanji at times if it was changing color and I was told or at least I read that Ray did not have enough time to do some color uh, and uh, you know color finalization did you hear anything about that oh yeah yeah that's definitely the case you can see Guanji uh, um, turning from different shades of blue to green to to gray um, it, it's all a matter of if you had enough time uh, Ray would Ray would actually test a lot. He would he would photograph the films and and uh, with the models in front of the screen and perform color tests. And then he would change filtering and lighting, whatever to try to get things to match. Uh, if you didn't have a lot of time, and, and Guanji is a a movie with significant amount of animation, so he didn't really have as much time as he normally would. He couldn't run all the testing and, and do all the fine tuning he would normally have done on a project which didn't have as much animation. I think somebody has said that there's something like 19 minutes of animation in, in Guanji, which is which is a huge amount considering uh, you know, the film's runtime. No, it's uh, and for it to debut for me on television was such a disservice to me because I would have liked to. I don't know if I've ever seen it on the big screen. Have you ever seen it on the big screen? I have. I've been lucky uh, enough to see it several times in, in L.A. area. I mean, there have been different. Uh, I saw in Pasadena, they had a Harryhausen festival. And then um, 
when Ray got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, they did several screenings at the Cinematheque. So I've, I've seen it at least three or four times on the big screen, which is nice. Uh, print quality can always vary though, right? Oh, sure, sure. Uh, there's just something really special about seeing these movies on the big screen as they were intended to be shown. Absolutely. Uh, and with an yeah. audience that appreciates them too, right? If you're, oh, if you're going to a special screening um, full of Harry Harryhausen fans, it's a lot different than, uh, than watching it at home. You bet, you bet. <laughs> the, one of my, I, I know that the, the most logistically challenging scene in the movie is when uh, Tuck and the other cowboys rope Guanji and trap him in their, in their lariats. And it's, it's, it's a pretty amazing piece of animation. It's really beautiful how well the, uh, uh, the ropes coming off Guanji match to the ropes in the hands of the horse riders as they're moving along. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's fantastic animation. And, and there, the, uh, you can imagine how much trouble Ray had to, to both align those, not just in terms of physical alignment of the end of the rope on the cowboy's hands matching the uh, partial rope on the, on the dinosaur model, but also trying to match the color and everything else so that it, it blends seamlessly. And it works perfectly. And, and it, really follows, it really follows the storyboards OB did in 1941 very closely. Well, Ray has done some amazing sequences in his career. And, you know, up to Guanji, I think my favorite was, of course, the, the March of the Skeletons and the Skeleton Fight and Jason, the Argonauts. Uh, but those were uh, th those were characters who were on on uh, on foot. I mean, when you have bring in real horses uh, to have to match to that, I mean, it must be quite a dance he had to do. Well, ab absolutely. And, and um, what they really did is they had basically a, a truck with a giant monster pole on it, if you will, representing where Guanji was, that they would have the uh, um, people on the horses lasso and hold on to. So there was a physical vehicle in the scene um, that was cut out of both sides of the projection, um, being the point that the, uh, the riders were all working to with holding their ropes. And it all got replaced by the animated model of, of Guanji. It's so, it's so crazy with Greg Kulan about the Valley of Guanji. Uh, when you were doing your article for Film Facts Magazine, which is an extensive article, I think it's in three parts, correct? That's correct, yes. But, uh, what kind of research did you have to do? Did you, Were you able to chat with anybody from the film? Well, um, I had talked to Ray Harryhausen in the past about the film, so um, uh, I didn't try to... Uh, to contact him when I was doing anything direct for this, but mainly uh, the research I had done was to to find out more about the Willis O'Brien project that drove this all. Sure. And so I went down to uh, UCLA where they have the uh, um, RKO production files, and there's quite a, a series of story treatments and early scripts for the for the 1940s version of the film there. And they also at UCLA happen to have the William Bass papers, so I was able to see. Uh, multiple drafts of the uh, the working script for the, what became the Valley of Guanji for Harry Housen. Uh, in terms of Bass material, because I'm always interested in the, the writing, uh, the, the, you know, the various shades of the story, from the first draft to the final drafts that you saw, were, they, were there market changes of note or were they fairly subtle? Oh, uh, they were actually, um, 
I'll, I'll say fairly subtle for the most part from the from the versions of uh, the Bass script, and I think that's partially because um, he he had so much to go on from the earlier scripts um, for um, uh, Harold Lamb and, and uh, Emily Berry that were done for the um, O'Brien project. Uh, William Bass had told Mike Hankin for his book Master of the Magics on Harryhausen that he hadn't seen a script for the uh, earlier project, but when you compare the uh, last script that was done in you know, 1941 to his uh, early script in 1967, it becomes obvious there's, that he had seen it because there's so much of the, uh, maybe the dialogue's not the same, but so much of the character interaction is is very similar. And uh, the whole, um, um, I'll call it rapport or lack of rapport, if you will, between uh, uh, Kirby and Breckenridge, you know, the, the romantic angle that's coming and going um, is all there from the very earliest scripts in 1941. So, now, did, it, did, you, did I hear the name Harold Lamb? Yes. Because Harold Lamb is well known as a writer of historical fiction. Yes, he is. Uh, I think I think you could say uh, some people would credit him as uh, inspiring Robert E. Howard for Conan. Right, right. I, I, a friend of mine reads a lot of historical fiction, and I, he's mentioned Harold Lamb's ma name many times. Uh, so that's it. So he was involved in that 1941 draft. Yes, he was. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And with, uh, in the various drafts, did TJ always run a circus? Yes, that was pretty pretty much consistent from the early, earliest story treatment I could find. Um, uh, Tux interaction was varied in the in the plays a little bit but there was always a backstory where they had a relationship that was gone sour and uh tuck was uh in the earliest drafts very much in love with this one horse that he wanted to own and uh he kept on uh entering contests in the uh in the tj circus to uh to win prize money so that he could eventually buy the horse from her omar the wonder horse uh, yeah, I think it had a different name on the earlier scripts, but it it was uh, Omar by the final Lamb script, and uh, and well, obviously made Omar in the finished film. Sure, sure. Now another aspect I think of the story, which certainly combines matte paintings with actual locations, is where they shot Valley of Guanji, and where pretty much was that shot? Oh, we're talking about um, places in in Spain. And That's I think there were locations in Mallorca. So it's not surprising that Schneer brought everybody back to Spain because he had had, I guess, Seventh Voyage of Sinbad was shot there. Jason the Argonauts was shot there. Uh, it was a, a favorite location of his. It, it was. I mean, they kind of went back there for pretty much every color movie that they did, um, you know, from... Uh, at least from Mysterious Island on. So it, it was an area where there were a lot of people that um, would cost-effectively build props and things like that. They had a lot of locations that people in the United States were not used to seeing on their television screen every weekend. So it right. turned out to be a you know a perfect spot. Um, yes, Samuel Bronston was at the higher end of production in Spain. He was building those epics... Uh, like the fall of the Roman Empire, 55 mm -hmm. days at Peking, Circus World. Those were shot in Spain, but obviously Schneer didn't have those kind of budgets. But you're right, he obviously there's there's a ton of extras in Guanji. Do we know what the budget of Guanji was? 
Oh, uh, you know, I, I would have to check. It wasn't it wasn't large for a Harry Housen film. They they got right. better with with the following films. Sure, sure. Well, Warner Brothers was also a studio that was. I think they were watching their budgets very carefully now, especially with the changing of the hands. And uh, I wish he had been given more money, but I, I still believe that you get a lot of bang for your bucket. And when when Guanji really starts going. In that second half, it, it really it's really killer. And of course, all the sequences that take place back at the circus, which obviously very King Kong-like. Um, but I'll have I have to say, in terms of a sense of realism and in seeing the best of of Ray's work on this picture, has to be inside the church. Oh, very much so. And and that is one area where the uh, you know, it was a completely different ending than the O'Brien project. So it was uh it's a beautiful scene, I think, and I, I love the fact uh, there's actually places where the, the music isn't playing and all you kind of hear is the uh, the padding of Guanji's feet on on the floor echoing through the church. And it's just, it's I think it's beautiful and, and sets up a great amount of uh, attention for those shots. Absolutely. The sound effect of those, those slapping uh, claws of Guanji are, are scary as all hell. Uh, and also, that, that may be the largest church I've ever seen in any movie. I mean, my goodness, the walls, the the, the ceilings look like it was 50 feet high. It, it is a large church, a very beautiful location. And of course, uh, I won't give away the ending because we don't want to do any spoilers for people who have not seen this movie. This is 1969. This is uh, Warner Brothers. Uh, unfortunately, as we mentioned earlier, the studio lost faith in the movie, so it was given barely given a theatrical release. And for for Harryhausen fans like myself, the only way I was able to discover it was was on the CBS Late Movie, and it deserved a much better fate than that. So, Greg, are you uh, are you working on a new uh, a story on a different kind of film? Uh, what are you working on these days? Uh, well, I'm, I'm writing several articles. Um... For different magazines, mainly uh, The Dark Side and Infinity, but the big project I've got going is I'm writing a book on Willis O'Brien that hopefully will be out next year. So um, that that research, when I started uh, digging into UCLA, we ended up finding a lot of other things in the RKO production documents uh, that that led me to think there there was a book here that that needs to be. Uh, added to uh to really flesh out the details on Willis O'Brien's uh different projects both the ones that that got made and the ones that didn't now when you think of uh stop motion animation obviously you think of Willis O'Brien obviously King Kong is one of the great movies of all time were there competing uh stop motion people at that time or did did Willis have the the turf pretty much to himself you know, from a, uh, I'll call it from a feature film perspective, he, he very much had it to himself. There, everything else he was dealing, you know, with or competing with was either low budget or it was, uh, you know, the other stop motion going around was like the Sterovich films or the Carol Zeman films from Czechoslovakia. Those were much more um, short films and artistic projects. He had the George Pal puppetoons, but there weren't very many films that actually used um, stop motion for its creatures. Um, but the ones that did wanted Obi or they couldn't afford Obi. And so they, you know, you ended up with films like Dinosaurus where Jack Harris uh, did hire Obi for a little bit, at least of consultation, things like that. 
But uh, it wasn't until um, Ray Harryhausen went off and started baking the beast from 20,000 Fathoms and other things that there was, a, I'll call it a serious regular production of, of stop motion animated films hitting the theaters. Oh, other sure. projects would come out like, you know, for Project Unlimited, right? Some George Pal films and all that. But those were usually where there'd be one or two sequences in a film, not a not a major character throughout. No, exactly. I mean, uh, and and Ray's Redosaurus in the uh, Beast from 20,000 Fathoms to this day is just mind blowing in terms of how realistic he looks. And it's a fantastic uh, sculpt. Yeah. And a great film, just a really interesting film. And the, the other film that always gets talked about at the same time, The Giant Behemoth, did that feature stop motion? Well, yes, that did, yeah. And that was uh, uh, Willis O'Brien and Pete Peterson, but on a very limited budget. Very and, limited uh, budget. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, they uh, uh, they were hoping for something much bigger, and, uh, and they just got a small percentage of the bu budget, but... Obi was able to pull off some amazing things with with very small budgets. He just uh, they had to work in Pete Peterson's uh, garage and home to to film a lot of the final shots. But the, there's some beautiful images in that film that are well worth seeing. There's there's a stop motion shot that I think lasts about a minute with with the beast uh, or the giant behemoth coming from the back of the screen to the front of the camera. Tremendous depth of field and a beautiful shot that you could never see anybody else at the time spending all that effort to try to get right. Right, of course, of course. Well, we all look forward to seeing this book on on a, on a master of the special of the stop motion special effects. Uh, what is your sense of the form today? I mean, obviously, we're living in a digital universe, which is like a magic lamp of. Of, of doing everything and anything in digital form. Uh, do, are there still people doing stop motion? Oh, oh, there definitely are. Um, I think what you'd probably say, though, is that most of the films that are out there are, are fairly stylized, right? I mean, you have uh, um, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, a beautiful animation, and there's some really fine, subtle character work. Um, you know, Henry Selleck's Wendell and Wilde, there'll be a new film coming out from... Uh, Leica in 2025. So there's a lot of films that are puppet films, if if I could use that term. But um, man, I think it's still a beautiful medium that people relate to. But you don't really see much, if any, work going on that actually melds live action actors with uh, with animated creatures that we saw from Harryhausen and O'Brien. Um, I, I, we we haven't mentioned it. I, I have to say one of his last films, if not his last uh, film, uh, The Clash of the Titans. Uh, I just love that movie. Like I like a, lo a lo love a lot of Ray's films. Again, terrific stories, fun characters. Exactly, and and I think the Medusa sequence in that film is one of his best ever. I mean, oh yeah, it, it's oh, a beauty. Yeah. And it's the the lighting is perfect, and it's. It's so well thought out. I mean, the uh, there's there's a good amount of tension there when when Perseus is waiting um, to to chop her head off. Uh, you talk about spoilers, um, and uh, I think it's just beautifully done. And and the the flickering flames uh, lighting the scene were were a masterpiece in my mind. Oh sure, sure. Um... And and fun stuff. I mean, it's so funny that uh, this was released in, at the same period as the early Star Wars movies, 
and um, the little boobo, the the owl, is so much fun. Uh, yeah, I, I he wasn't my favorite. I I always liked the seriousness of Ray's films, but uh, it, it was interesting always to hear Ray talk about it because obviously he uh he heard so many times that people would you know say boobo was the uh, the R two D two of the Harry Hauser world, right? And <laughs> well, he, I, he I, did not appreciate that. <laughs> well, I think the, I, I'll tell you why I think I like the boobo character. Because it's Lawrence Rosenthal's music. Uh, I think Lawrence Rosenthal did a very inspired score for Clash of the Titans. And Bubo's theme is just kind of fun and sweet and charming, I, I think. And and I, ha I it's funny, I bumped into Harry Hamlin at one of the autograph shows. And I still want to get him on my podcast for a night of Clash of the Titans. And if we do it, maybe you'll come on and we'll do it together. Oh, that would be great. Um, he's got some great stories. I've, I've seen him a few times at different screenings of the films, and I'm sure he'll tell you the story about uh, um, um, the, the end of Medusa and how he really wanted to get it right, independent of what the script said. <laughs> okay, well, that'll be interesting. Of course, I can't interview any actors right now because of the strike. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, that's true. Hopefully, the, that will not be uh, going on much longer. Uh, a lot of people, it would be nice for a lot of people to get back to work there. Boy, isn't that the truth? Well, we have been listening to uh, Greg Hulan, uh, who is a wonderful writer, researcher, historian. Obviously, he's been talking about his book, upcoming book on, on uh, Willis O'Brien. And we've been talking at length about the Valley of Guanji. If you haven't seen this movie, just go out and find it. I'm sure you can find it online somewhere uh, or purchase the DVD. Do you know if this movie has a Blu-ray yet? Uh, there is a Blu-ray out on it, yes. Okay, good, good. And uh, uh, it's it's just worth watching. And and don't worry that it's a little slow in the beginning because just so soak up this storyline because it's going to lead you to quite a path of fun with Guanji the Great. Thanks so much, Greg. Thank you. It's been fun. <laughs>